Welcome to The Long Play, Portland Monthly's podcast featuring candid conversations with the city's most interesting thinkers, makers, and characters. I'm digital editor Rebecca Jacobson, and I'm here with writer and Portland Monthly contributor Casey Jarman. Casey's just published his first book titled Death, An Oral History, which is a collection of interviews about death with a wide range of people, from a death row warden to cartoonist Art Spiegelman to a scientist who advocates for something called psychedelic hospice. Casey, welcome to The Long Play. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. So when I first learned you were writing a book about death, I assumed you'd been closely affected by it. But that's actually not the case, as you describe in the introduction. Um, Your grandparents died before or shortly after you were born. Your parents are still alive, and you've never had a close friend die. Uh, Your motivations for writing were quite different. Could you read a little bit from the introduction where you describe that? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I'll start here. Some people write books to try to live past their natural expiration dates. I wrote this one in the hopes of beating death altogether. Talking to people about death for a year seemed like a pretty solid way to combat my own fear of it. Call it exposure therapy. If you have a fear of heights, spend some time in the mountains. If you're scared of physical pain, get yourself into a fist fight. And if you're scared of death, what can you do short of dying? You can spend a year of your life talking about it. So first off, why did you want to beat death? Well, it's terrifying to me, uh, as I think it is for you know a lot of people. Um, especially people who haven't been around it. I think there's even more of an unknown and a, and a terrifying uh, aura around it for those of us who've been lucky enough to, for the most part, avoid it. Um, that, I mean, that may or may not be true. I'm pulling that, pulling that out of my ass. But uh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> why why you wanted to beat death? I... Um, I've had, you know, anxiety around death for a long time. I think for me personally, it's it's more having to do with the whole concept of non-existence. Um, that's where a lot of it comes from. I have a lot of friends and family that'll say, well, I'm not scared of my own death. I'm just worried about losing people around me. And I certainly have that fear as well. Like I think we all do. Um, but for me, maybe it's more of a selfish thing. I, I really, what really terrifies me more than anything is, you know, being nothing is this nothingness. Um, so I guess I started working on the book as sort of a quasi spiritual, uh, pursuit. I'm, I'm pretty solidly agnostic. Uh, and I didn't expect to like, you know, find an enlightened path through writing this book, but I was hoping I could find some kind of coping mechanisms for that anxiety that is pretty overwhelming. And, and really, I think I was trying to like prepare for, for losing people around me for the people, you know, it's funny, I catch myself saying losing. And I talk to so many people in this book who say, you know, why do we say losing? Why do we say we've lost something? Um, And it's true. So I'm trying to be more concrete in my language and say, I I worry about, you know, people in my life dying. Um, But so yeah, part of this is, is, is prep work. I really thought maybe if I interview enough people about this subject, I can kind of learn the best practices of avoiding grief and uh, preparing for grief so that it it could all go very smoothly for me. Mm. And and in retrospect, I think that's kind of an illusion. I think um, you you can never quite know what to expect. You never know how you're going to respond to something like a family member dying or a friend dying. Um, And so... Yeah, if anything, it's loosened my expectations a little bit. Okay, so you don't necessarily feel better prepared to deal with death or grief. Well, in, in a way I do. I mean, I, I think I think what it helped me with was this acknowledgement that bad things are going to happen and 
you're going to have to just go with it as much as you possibly can. Um, I think one thing that came up again and again in these interviews was, was people saying that uh, some folks not only have the the grief that, that occurs when someone in your life dies, but they also have this sort of guilt about not doing it right, not grieving right. Um, Jana, the first interviewee in the book, talks about that, and, and some other folks touched on it too. Um, and I, I, I guess if I learned anything, it's that I don't know anything and that that's okay. Uh, the one thing I do feel better about is my willingness to sort of uh, embrace the subject and think about the subject in a way that doesn't have to be just dire. I still have my days when I think about it and it is excruciating to me and terrifying to me. Uh, but I have other days where I can think about it as kind of a creative pursuit. And that's like been really huge for me. That that thought of being able to be a little bit playful about it um, really helps, you know, leave me a little more even keel on the days when I'm when I'm not feeling good about it. Yeah, yeah, sounds 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 good thinking of it as playful as well. Um you mentioned this interview with with Jana, Jana De Cristofaro who works at uh, the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland and I really appreciated that this was the first chapter because she talks so much about working with kids and teenagers and it really makes clear how all of us are just bumbling through this death thing, whether it's a, um, a death we're grieving ourselves or supporting a friend who's grieving. How did that interview help guide you through the rest of your interviews? Well, she was, Jana was fantastic on a number of levels, um, in part because she co-hosts a podcast for the Dougie Center around death. And it, and it takes a playful approach. I mean, it can take a very serious, you know, tone as well, strike a serious tone. Um, but a lot of them investigate, you know, different things that you can do with a loved one's, you know, body after they die. Um, you know, just creative stuff like that or talking to people about new ideas in the field of death. Um, so she's really willing to uh, entertain the subject in these kind of non-traditional ways. So, so that was one way it was helpful. Um, you know, she also pointed me to people who were interesting and doing interesting things in the field directly, and that was helpful. Um, but in terms of our interview, I think I got so much out of it, um, and I am, I'm really glad that it, it kicks off the book. And Because one of the huge things I got from it was that adults don't necessarily have a better coping mechanism for dealing with grief than kids do. And in fact, you know, kids have this instinct to really ask hard-hitting questions. They really want concrete information. Um, you know, whereas adults oftentimes kind of come up with stories about what happened and and or cliches that might help them get through something really difficult. Um, I found that really interesting. You know, that kids react best to these terrible situations when you give it to them straight, when you talk to them honestly. And I think there's something kids can teach us in that regard. That came up elsewhere in the book, too, talking to Teresa Rayford, a local activist who was, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, and she was talking about how kids are you know, often the leaders of that movement because they see things as they are, they see injustice as it is, and they, you know, they demand for things to be right in the world. And I think it's a similar thing with, with death. I think kids, um, you know, kids want to hear it like it is, and they want to tell it like it is. Um, and the fact that the Dougie Center offers those services to them, giving them a place to be frank and open and honest about death uh, is really, you know, a moving thing and a really 
vital thing to me. I thought that was great. You mentioned language, too, and sometimes the euphemistic language that we use when talking about death, whether it's someone passes away or mm-hmm. the loss of someone, and it's really not a loss. We know, well, we may not know exactly where they've gone, but it's not like we've lost a pair of shoes. Right. They're not here. How how did doing these interviews change the way you you talk about death or the language you try to use around it? I mean, I'm still learning. I think... Uh, in part because you really want to be sensitive with people. I mean, I think that's where the instinct comes from for the most part is trying to soften the blow for someone else, you know, trying to be there for someone else in this devastating time in their lives. So you use phrases like that, like they passed away or I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, you know, these words that aren't death, dying, you know, hard words, um, because you want to make things easier on, on people. Uh, so I understand that instinct completely, and I'm still totally prone to it. I'm sure if I, you know, if a close friend uh, had a, a parent or a friend die, I would still use those cliches just like everybody else does. Um, but I'm trying to fight against it. I think because that it kind of minimizes loss. I mean, that's one argument is when you say you've lost someone, you're kind of minimizing the scale of of what happened. It's kind of uh, putting kid gloves on this situation that we should acknowledge is is hard as hell and is uh, always going to be difficult and it, there's no you know euphemism that can soften the blow so i think a lot of people in this book really drove that point home i'm not sure if i was actively seeking those people out who were sort of uh activists for using more concrete language or if they seeked me out uh, but i know that that was a theme in the book that i didn't necessarily expect um but yeah, I think it's really important to just be honest and open with one another. And, you know, maybe the best thing to say isn't, I'm sorry for your loss. Maybe it's, this fucking sucks. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I think, yeah. I think uh, sometimes that's what people want to hear. Yeah, a blunt acknowledgement mm-hmm. of, of the reality of it. Let's talk a little more about some of the the more radical or societally unusual yeah. views or approaches that, that some of the people in this book take towards death and dying. Uh, you have a chapter with Katrina Spade, who runs something called the Urban Death Project. Can you describe Can you describe that for us? So Katrina Spade is this amazing woman in Seattle, uh, and her project, the Urban Death Project, is basically a composting center for human beings. Um, which on the surface, you know, sounds outlandish and almost kind of obscene. Uh, But to me, one thing that I learned from working on this book and from reading other books about death is that all the things we consider normal about, you know, death and the actual, the burial process and all the things that happen to a body after a person dies um, are sort of things we made up along the way. And we made them up for sometimes practical reasons and sometimes uh, just vain, you know, vanity reasons. Um, embalming is a you know holdover from the Civil War when people needed to transfer bodies for long distances, and so they came up with these really toxic methods of uh, dealing with you know with corpses. Um, and it's something that we keep up to this day, not because we need to, not because there's any real you know reason for embalming to still exist, but because it's become tradition. Um, and it's a relatively new tradition. So Katrina is really just saying. What if we had, you know, why don't we start a new tradition? Why don't we try some new things? Um, Not necessarily composting. I think she's really interested in a lot of different, uh, more environmentally safe and environmentally friendly practices around the disposal of human bodies. 
Um, but this one in particular, I mean, it, it does get a little hairy and it gets a little unnerving for some people because they're not only are you laying a, a body in the ground and waiting for it to decompose, there's some uh, machine processes that have to happen there too in order to break down elements of the human body. Um, so it's a radical proposal in a way because, you know, we think about compost as throwing out egg eggshells and, uh, you know, scraps of food. Uh, so it's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to equate that idea with human beings. But for me, there's something really comforting about it. Um, I don't. The, I think for a lot of people, the idea of being embalmed and placed into a casket and being, you know, sort of preserved in this funny way um, doesn't necessarily give me any comfort. The idea of a natural burial definitely gives me comfort, and the idea of being composted and, you know, turning into a tree. I don't. I mean, when you put it that way, it, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, thinking of it as another form of reincarnation. Did that interview or others make you think about what you want to do with your with your own body after you die? I'm kind of in the camp where it doesn't matter much to me what happens after I die. I mean, I really don't put a ton of stock in my physical body. You can tell, <laughs> you know, don't work out a lot. Uh, I don't um, put a ton of stock in, in what happens to my physical body. Um, but I do realize that you know, especially after spending a lot of time with people who have been through, you know, heavy uh, grief and, and having friends die and family members die, I do realize that that's important for the people around you. So, you know, personally, I, I, I haven't thought about it too hard, but I, I almost would just want the people in my life to take a poll, you know, <laughs> and figure it out for themselves. <laughs> I really, whether I'm cremated or buried or what have you, I, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be around to feel it. So for me, it's not too big of a deal. But I, I do take some comfort in that idea of being in the ground. I mean, if you know, that's what animals do. They they wind up uh, being in the in the ground. Actually, when I was a little kid, there's a book called I think it's called The Tenth Good Thing About Barney. Is that what it's called? Gosh, I, as I in the up. purple dinosaur? No, no, it's no. a cat. There's a okay, cat, okay. Uh, and I hope I'm getting his name right. But there's this book about a cat. And the cat uh, dies, and it's a these parents trying to tell the kid, um, their their child, how to you know feel better about their cat dying. And so they first they have all these they talk about their memories of this cat, all the great things the cat did when it was alive. And then the tenth thing, the final item, is that he's in the ground helping flowers grow, and that's this like cool thing for a kid. And I think it is. I think a kid grasps that right away. That that neat idea of becoming something else whereas adults you know we get pretty attached to our <laughs> to our bodies we get pretty attached to our sense of self um, hence all my anxiety over this whole death thing and we have a harder time with that idea of being a part of the larger ecosystem the larger universe um, but I do find that a little bit comforting mm-hmm. so bear, so throw me in a, in a burlap sack toss me in the ground somewhere I'm good with that Okay, okay, take note, family and friends of Casey. Um, you also speak with a scientist named Catherine McLean who has these ideas about psychedelic hospice and hallucinogenic drugs um, being being given to people who are who are dying with their consent. We should <laughs> make clear. How did you come across her? That was a, a friend of a friend. Um, I have a friend in New York who's a journalist uh, who I, th- I think it's just social acquaintances with Catherine. Um, and so she basically, I think we were just emailing and she said, I do have a friend in, uh, she said upstate New York. I think it turned out she was in Connecticut. But I have a friend 
who lives on a farm and is really interested in psychedelics, researches psychedelics, and is talking about a psychedelic hospice. And I was just a hundred percent in at that point, you know. Um, I I mean I don't I'm not personally like a psychedelics uh, evangelist at all, uh, but I have a lot of people in my life who are, including uh, some members of my family. And I just I think it's an interesting subject. I mean I do think you know maybe the closest thing we get to dying in our waking lives is a psychedelic experience whether it's brought on by drugs or or brought on by you know going to the doctors and being put under um people have these really intense experiences and visions so i thought she was a fascinating kind of character to to talk with um but yeah she i mean her story she her sister died and her sister was kind of the opposite of her in a lot of ways, was straight-laced, um, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with psychedelics, really. And so the lesson that she learned, well, to, I should back up a little, I guess, to explain Catherine's story. Um, so Catherine was a psychedelics researcher at Johns Hopkins University, and she was her, one of her main roles was sitting with people uh, while they went through their psychedelic experiences in a trial setting, you know, in a medical kind of setting. Um, and so she learned all these best practices for walking people through a psychedelic experience. And when her sister was dying, she realized that she was using a lot of those same strategies uh, to walk her sister, you know, into the, the unknown that she had been using for her patients at Johns Hopkins. Um, and so she does, you know, make an argument or make a suggestion that psychedelics could be really helpful for people in their final days or in coping with the realization that they have a terminal illness, something like that. Um, but she also is, you know, pretty eager to say that that's not the only way, but that we can learn a lot from sort of this, uh, I don't want to say shamanism because that's not fair to her. That makes it sound sort of mystical, but, uh, we can learn a lot from, psychedelics about how to die whether that involves actually you know like dosing anyone is kind of another open question but yeah I was fascinated it definitely talking to her definitely made me think like well I'm gonna have to take some acid (laughs) at some point (laughs) in my life you know or some mushrooms because I it's not really part of my experience but um it's fascinating to me now yeah yeah it was quite um it's not something that you certainly something that's not widely widely talked about it was novel to me and there are there is this other there was a new york times story a little while back about this mushroom suit i don't know if you saw that but there's there i don't i don't remember all the fine details but there's basically a suit that has you know seeds of mushrooms in it that can kind of decompose a body and so it's another form of like human composting um and i believe it started as kind of an art project um so there, there are a lot of interesting things happening with mushrooms around death for whatever reason. I think partly because some of the legislation around psychedelics research is loosening a little bit in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, so, you know, there, we, don't, we just don't know much about psychedelics because no one's ever been allowed yeah. to kind of research with them. So it's a whole other field. But Wait, so these would be psychedelic mushrooms that are growing out of a decomposing body? This is a good question. Now, now, or were they just regular Now mushrooms? you've exposed how half-assedly <laughs> I read this article. <laughs> it was one of those things where everyone was sharing this thing with me. Have you heard about this mushroom suit? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about the mushroom suit. Right, uh, But right. I, yeah, I, I, I skimmed. A so passing. I need to return to the mushroom suit and find out. And then I'll come back and okay, do another okay. chat with you about it. Okay, okay, great. Follow up. I will. Um, 
you also speak with a woman who lives in Portland, Holly Pruitt, who I think it's life cycle celebrant yeah. is how she identifies herself. And she runs these death cafes in Portland, uh, which happen all around the globe. But the biggest ones happen here in Portland. Is that is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, it, it started in London, as far as I know, um, and sort of you know, not franchised, but uh, sort of made its way out to Portland. And Holly is in close touch with the people who started the first one in London. Um, Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, she really is just a a seeker of a person. You know, she's a really curious person. Um, And her curiosity about death and and life uh, are kind of her her focus. Um, Or at least she'd like those to be her focus. She actually does a lot of different things, but this is her passion is talking about death and thinking about death and working with it in as constructive a way as as she she can have. Um, yeah, she was really inspiring. I mean, that that she was definitely one of the cornerstone people who made me realize that uh, it was it was good to be asking these questions. She was excited to have me asking her about these things, and she always she still to this day when I see her, it always says like, "Don't forget that you do have a story to tell." She she says like, "You, I'm always prone to pushing you know other people's stories. I don't, especially as a person who." has most of my family alive, knock on wood, and uh, friends around. I kind of came at this book not knowing if I had anything to say personally. I just wanted to be this sort of filter for other people's stories. Um, and she was really insistent and said, you do have a story. I mean, and it's a common story, and it's a story people can relate to. And she's always been really positive about asking me to you know, make sure that I'm getting my story into this book too, which is great. That's one of the ways that she helped me with this book. Yeah, you mention in the introduction to the interview with her that through your conversations with her about ritual, you've noticed how absent it is in your life. How has your thinking about ritual changed or are you doing more things to incorporate ritual? I think I'm not quite there yet uh, in terms of like creating new rituals in my own life, but I'm really compelled by that idea. I'm really interested in that idea And I do, I mean, I think I just acknowledge it more in my life now. I see, I mean, I have friends that have, you know, DJ nights every week and and friends that organize little trips to the coast for our our group of friends every once and again. And I've never really been that person. I've been the person who shows up to things. I can't say I've been the person who organizes parties and rituals and commemorates occasions. I, you know, I just got married recently and it was a very low key wedding we got married at a karaoke bar and uh with you know 12 friends there no family like very low-key um and that's my instinct is always to kind of understate things i think having a british dad is part of that deal um we don't like to make a huge celebratory deal of things (laughs) but i am starting to see it you know i'm starting to recognize it more that it happens organically um in my life ritual and i'm trying to embrace it more um yeah i guess I have a lot of work to do on that front. Um, but this idea, what's exciting to me about it is when I think about ritual, I think of traditions. I think of like, you know, throwing the flowers at a wedding or stepping on the glass at a Jewish wedding or, you know, these things that have been around forever. And I've never been totally excited by those. But I, I love the idea of creating some new ones that, that might carry on, you know, after I'm gone. All uh, right. Get to it. So I need to get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So in addition to some of the people we've mentioned, you also interview um, some folks very close to you, friends, your uncle, your mom. What was it like to sit down with these people and have these pointed conversations about death? I think they affected me. You know, I, I learned a lot from everyone. Um, and, and maybe I even learned more from sort of the professionals and the thinkers and, and you know, uh, people who engage with death on a regular basis professionally. Uh, I might have, I think I learned more factually from them. But having these experiences of sitting down with friends and family and really having like no holds barred conversations about death was huge for me. And it's something that I'm, actively continuing in my life and talking to more people about I mean I, I kind of have a, a checklist of folks that I need to talk to about death um, and not just about death but I think a con- the great thing about talking about death is it's this amazing starting point for conversations because immediately you lower your defenses um, and you open up the, the table to you know have anything on it with people um, and so that's been super amazing and huge. And I was surprised in some cases. Um, my childhood friend, uh, Gabe, you know, talked to me so openly about his twin brother dying when they were 13. And, and in my head, that was always just sort of, you know, local lore. It's the kind of thing that you almost forget about because you're a kid when it happens and you, you know, I didn't have to live with it the way that Gabe had to live with it. Um, and so letting people return to these stories that were so meaningful to them, but that people seldom ask them about, it was really powerful. And especially with Gabe, with my mom and with, with my friend, Anna, um, Anna was really going through it. She was like a few weeks out from, uh, her mom dying. And, you know, I've never, I guess the conversations we have with people in that situation are normally brief and short and, uh, full of, I'm sorry. Um, and that conversation, because we sat there for a few hours on our porch drinking beers and talking about this shitty thing that happened to her, we got past all those I'm sorry's and got into all these big open-ended questions that she had that I couldn't answer and she couldn't answer. And, and I think there's something really like, you know, magical about that. It, it's tough, but it's um, it's great to know that we have that capacity as human beings to really dig in past the the surface yeah no that was uh the the interview you've just described with your friend with your friend Anna was wrenching to to read but also I really admired the two of you for for having that that conversation and digging into that deep awful stuff about about grief um and having not gone through uh, uh, I was going to say a loss, having not gone yeah. through a death that yeah. that that close to me, um, it gave me at least a tiny window into it, while also making clear that I can't know exactly what it's what it's like. Which I think is another thing that becomes clear in your book that even if you have a million conversations about death, you can never totally know what another person's experience is like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and there, we also have this thing in common that we all share, you know, whether we've gone through it or not, which is that we're all headed that direction. Um, and I think that that can be a uniting factor. You know, I, I think that that can be something really profound to share with someone is this fear of death. Um, and you know, I hadn't been through it in talking with Anna, but I certainly could relate to her fear of the unknown, um, her questions about 
you know, where do things go from here? Um, I, on, on one level I, I couldn't identify and I felt so helpless sitting with her. And on another level, on a, on a deep human level, I think I felt very in that boat with her because I knew sooner or later I, I'm going to go through it if I'm lucky enough to stick around <laughs> long enough to go through it. And I have all those same questions that, that she had. She's just being forced to really confront them. And so I guess if the, if it taught me, you know, one big thing, it's, it's confront them before you have to. Um, because I, I, while I don't think you can beat the fear or the anxiety or any of that, I do think that you can be, I think you can be more ready and willing to confront those things when the worst happens. If, if you, do a little prep if you do if you do a little thinking about it and try to turn it into something other than the enemy you know which is something that holly pruitt talks about um is we all treat it like the enemy and and we've got to get to a place where death is the inevitable you know thing that it is and not this terrifying beast not this caricature of a dude in a cloak with a sickle you know yeah yeah not not the grim reaper right um, so we're nearly out of time, but I also wanted to ask, um, because in much of your life, you're a music writer, um, you co-founded a record label, Party Damage Records, um, and I know that you think and talk about death with musicians you interview and when you listen to music. Uh, you also put together uh, a little playlist uh, that I saw for the, for the Multnomah County Library, and so I wanted to close by asking you about some of your favorite I don't know if favorite is the right word to use but <laughs> yeah let's go with it some of your favorite death themed or death tinted music um, maybe, maybe some songs to play as you're reading this book I mean I, I guess the, the funny thing is is I don't consider myself to be a, a like a goth music fan you know or anything like that like I, I I'm not a Nick Cave fan I hate to say that because you lose a lot of cool points when Uh-oh. you say that you're not a Nick Cave fan um, and he's one of those guys who I think has written about death really beautifully and amazingly there are you know it's the kind of thing where when I read his lyrics I love it and then I hear the songs and I'm like yeah but that's taste that's just you know random taste so I tend to really enjoy songs that have some kind of narrative about death, maybe aren't directly about death, but have some narrative about death. I'm just thinking about the ones that I wrote for that blog because I kind of compiled this playlist. Um, And actually the first one that I selected was a song Poor Bastard by Kyle Morton, who's the uh, front man for this local band, Typhoon. I shouldn't even call them local because they're a national band at this point, but uh, his, he made a solo. Portland can still claim them. That's true. Yeah. We we will forever. And Salem can too, actually. A lot of those kids. Okay. So the opening track on his new solo album, uh, it's called Poor Bastard. And it's this story about this person being buried and it's unclear whether it's in a a dream or or life. He's being like lowered into his uh, grave and he wakes up and he pops out and he tells everybody, hey, sorry, like his friends and family. And it's kind of a pathetic funeral that he's having. It's like a handful of people. And he pops out and he's like, sorry, just just joshing you. And they all kind of like laugh it off and walk away and then he's stuck with this realization of like reincarnation being a real thing so it goes from being this kind of light-hearted uh macabre joke song to being this kind of profound realization it kicks off his album it's a beautiful song like really has these cool horn arrangements and everything um randy newman's another guy who's written about death 
in really fascinating ways. I think like people hear the name Randy Newman and they think about Disney movies and Toy Story and you know, hopefully he's been around long enough now that he's earned some respect back, but he's got a handful of songs. One of them is uh, So Hard Living Without You, which it's kind of unclear whether it's about the end of a relationship or about a death, but it's brutal. I mean, it's about feeling nothing, you know, it's a really a song about numbness and dragging yourself out of the, out of bed in the morning when you're feeling capital L loss. Um, that's a brilliant one. But then he also has a song called old man and it's an incredible song because it's about, I, I assume it's about his father dying or the character's father, but it's about a, a son who has a bad relationship with their dad and they're having to say goodbye to them on their on their deathbed and there's no one else there because there's a bitter old dude. And it's like, it's an extremely touching song even though the sentiment is, you know, I don't know what to make of you. I don't, you, we don't have an emotional connection. So what do I do with this grief? What do I do with, how do I say goodbye to you? Um, and he has a number of songs that kind of touch on that. I don't, for whatever ran, reason, Randy Newman is like my high watermark of people writing about death. He, he really does it deftly and with a lot of subtlety and he's, he's great. Okay. Randy okay. Newman. Just, just go listen to Randy Newman, everybody. Yeah. Go listen to Randy Newman and maybe a little bit of Kyle Morton while reading Casey Jarman's new book, Death and Oral History. Uh, Casey, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Come back, come back. Eventually you'll 